verses 12 to 17, 22 to 25, and then 27 to 36. Eli's sons were wicked men. They had no regard for the Lord. Now it was the practice of the priests with the people that whenever anyone offered a sacrifice and while the meat was being boiled, the servant of the priest would come with a three-pronged fork in his hand. He'd plunge it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot and the priest would take for himself whatever the fork brought up. This is how they treated all the Israelites who came to Shiloh. But even before the fat was burned, the servant of the priest would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, give the priest some meat to roast. He won't accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. If the man said to him, let the fat be burned up first and and then take whatever you want, the servant would then answer, no, hand it over now. If you don't, I'll take it by force. This sin of the young men was very great in the Lord's sight, for they were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. Now Eli, who was very old, heard about everything his sons were doing to all Israel and how they slept with the women who served at the entrance to the tent of meeting. So he said to them, Why do you do such things? I hear from all the people about these wicked deeds of yours. No, my sons, It is not a good report that I hear spreading among the Lord's people. If a man sins against another man, God may mediate for him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who will intercede for him? His sons, however, did not listen to their father's rebuke, for it was the Lord's will to put them to death. Now a man of God came to Eli and said to him, This is what the Lord says. Did I not clearly reveal myself to your father's house when they were in Egypt under Pharaoh? I chose your father out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, and to wear an ephod in my presence. I also gave your father's house all the offerings made with fire by the Israelites. Why do you scorn my sacrifice and offering that I prescribed for my dwelling? Why do you honour your sons more than me by fattening yourselves on the choice parts of every offering made by my people Israel? Therefore the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promised that your house and your father's house would minister before me forever. But now the Lord declares... Far be it from me. Those who honour me, I will honour, but those who despise me will be disdained. The time is coming when I will cut short your strength and the strength of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your family line, and you will see distress in my dwelling. Although good will be done to Israel, in your family line there will never be an old man. Every one of you that I do not cut off from my altar will be spared only to blind your eyes with tears and to grieve your heart and all your descendants will die in the prime of life. And what happens to your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, will be assigned to you. They will both die on the same day. 
I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and mind. I will faithfully, firmly establish his house and he will minister before my anointed one always. Then everyone left in your family line will come and bow down before him for a a piece of silver and a crust of bread and plead. Appoint me to some priestly office so that I can have food to eat. Juxtaposed with the heart-warming story of Hannah, God answering her prayers, giving her a son, and him being dedicated to the Lord and being raised in the tabernacle of God at Shiloh, there is this, this grim story of Eli, continuing in, in the vein of the judges, really. Another story that's difficult to get our heads round. Am I the only person here to feel sorry for Eli? Perhaps I am, I don't know. One of the last of the judges, he led Israel for 40 years until his death at the age of 98, which means he only started judging Israel in his late 50s. His death occurred in particularly tragic circumstances. The Israelites had gone into battle against the Philistines and took the Ark of the Covenant with them. Eli sat at the entrance to the sanctuary at Shiloh, waiting for news of the battle, fearful lest something should happen to the ark. And when news came, it was dire. The Israelites had been defeated. The ark of God had been captured by the Philistines. And both of Eli's sons, Hophni and Phileas, had been killed in the battle. In his shock, Eli fell backwards off his chair and broke his neck. His daughter-in-law, the wife of Phineas, was expecting a baby. When she heard the news, she went into labour. She lost a lot of blood. There was nothing they could do to save her. As she lay down, they brought her baby boy to her, and she named him Ikavoth, meaning the glory has gone. The ark had been captured. The glory had departed from Israel. In terms of tragic ends, you don't get much worse than that. And it was Eli's two sons who brought destruction and God's judgment upon themselves and their family. As Eli had succeeded his father as priest of the Lord at Shiloh, so his sons were working alongside him as priests there. But they were godless men. They cared nothing for the Lord and they abused their position. So if someone brought an offering as a sacrifice to honour God, the priests would help themselves to the choicest cuts of meat. They'd they'd dig in a fork and and get whatever portions came out of the pot. They would interrupt the whole sacrificial process to take what they wanted, when they wanted it. And if anyone objected, they were threatened with violence. They would sleep with the women who served at the sanctuary. In short, they treated the Lord, the sanctuary, and those who came to worship there, and those who worked there, with utter contempt. And God holds Eli responsible for their behaviour on the grounds that he knew what they were doing and he failed to restrain them. That's the bit I struggle with a bit because Eli had a go. He did have words with them. He said he'd heard from all sorts of people how they were behaving. What do you think you're doing? He warned them. He told them they would have to answer to God for it. 
And it's a stark warning. If one person sins against someone else, then God may deal between them. But if you sin against the Lord, who's going to pray for you then? You are offending the only one who can atone for your sin. But his sons paid him no attention whatsoever. And the tough bit is that the verdict of the narrator is that they ignored their father's rebuke because the Lord had decided to put them to death. So there's no way they were going to listen to their dad because the Lord had already decided to seal their fate. So I struggle with that, if I'm honest. Because it looks like Eli tried to sort them out, but they paid no attention to him because God had already decided to punish them anyway. And then God blames Eli because he didn't sort them out. And it's a harsh judgment. The Lord says he will bring distress upon his house. Cut off the house of Eli so that no one after him will live to a ripe old age. All his descendants would die in their prime. Both his sons would die on the same day. No sacrifice or offering would ever be able to atone for the sin of his family. Perhaps because his sons had so consistently abused the sacrificial system themselves. So it's not, even though Eli had not ignored what they were doing, he's held accountable for the behaviour of his sons. He did have words with them, but his intervention was condemned as being inadequate. Too little, too late. And yet the reason why his sons ignored him was because the Lord had already decided to punish them and the matter had already been taken out of his hands. And yet he's still held responsible. You go round and round and round. It's a tough one. Want to try and pick it apart and see what's going on. Why, when his sons were the promiscuous, greedy bullies, is Eli dragged down with them? That's the effect of sin. Our sinful behaviour always has an adverse effect on those around us. You can never sin in a vacuum. Always your behaviour will affect other people near you, particularly your nearest and dearest and the closest people to you. It is inevitable. If I were to behave like Hophni or Phineas, the effects would be catastrophic for my family and for you as a church because I can't sin privately. None of us can. Sin twists and distorts all our relationships. Everyone around us ends up being compromised and damaged. And then that may not be right, that may not be fair, but that is what sin does. And that is is why it is so harmful and damaging. Serious sin is like a nuclear explosion. There is always fallout. And people are caught up in it, even if they haven't committed the sin themselves. That's how it works. That's why it's so serious. It should never be underestimated. And I guess the bottom line is that Eli was in charge of the sanctuary. The buck ultimately stopped with him and nobody else. Whatever went on happened on his watch and he was accountable for it. That's one of the heavy burdens of leadership. You are responsible for the behaviour of those who are in your charge. Even if they are the ones doing wrong, it comes back to you as the person responsible for them. 
And maybe, maybe he had just been too, too lenient with his boys. After all, by the time he goes and pleads with them to stop what they are doing, it's because he's heard from everybody what's going on. You can't ignore it anymore when everybody's saying, Eli, have you heard what your boys are doing? Do you know what's happening? What are you going to do about it? It's only once they had become notorious for their godless behavior that he pleads with them to stop it. Why didn't he intervene sooner? Why didn't he nip it in the bud? Had he been lax in supervising the behavior of the priests at the sanctuary? Did he turn a blind eye to what was going on because of the family connections? Was he morally blind as well as physically blind in that respect? Was he perhaps a little bit intimidated by his sons? Had the power shifted from him to them and he just was too weak to do anything about their behaviour? Was he simply too old and tired to bear the burden of responsibility? And so was letting things slip past him. 98 is a very old age to be carrying that burden of responsibility. What's clear is that by the time he got round to speaking to his sons, the Lord had already decided he had enough of their behaviour and the axe was already poised, ready to fall. It was too late. It was too little, too late. He'd get, let them get away with it for far too long. And the boy's indifference to their father's words was itself an outworking of God's judgment against them, reinforcing their hardness of heart, because that's how the judgment of God works. If we set our hearts against God and we we set off in a direction and ignore him, sooner or later we will end up being confirmed in our decisions. If we turn our hearts against God, then God's judgment against us can be to harden our hearts in our resolve to disobey him. So it was that these these priests were hell-bent, heading down the wrong path, and the Lord simply closed the gate behind them. No way back now. So yes, Eli's intervention was too little too late. He should have addressed what was going on before it became common knowledge what was going on at Shiloh, dragging the name of the sanctuary, the name of the priesthood, the name of God into disrepute. He should have had that conversation with them when they first started to go off the rails. And if they refused to listen to him then, he should have taken the difficult step of disciplining them, maybe removing them from office. God's charge to Eli was that he'd honoured his sons more than he'd honoured the Lord. He simply hadn't kept them up to the mark and now they were dragging him down with them. His Lack of intervention had allowed them to flout their position with impunity. And he had been complicit in their behaviour. He'd had his share of the choice cuts of meat that they'd extorted from the worshippers at the sanctuary. That was the telltale sign that Eli had honoured his sons more than he honoured the Lord. He'd grown fat, gorging himself on the choice parts of every offering made by the Lord's people. 
He hadn't taken it himself, but he'd eaten it when they shared it with him. He hadn't participated in their bullying behaviour, but he'd enjoyed the benefits of it. He'd be caught up in their sinfulness. To that extent, he had gone along with them, and evil had prospered. What's the saying? All it takes for evil to prosper is for good people to do nothing. He'd done nothing. And he himself had been contaminated by his son's behaviour, involved in it, complicit with it. Because he didn't resist it, he ended up going along with it as the line of least resistance. These men were bad apples presiding at the Lord's sanctuary in Shiloh. And rather rather than taking decisive action to remove them, Eli allowed them to stay in post, and so himself was gradually corrupted by their greed. There's the tragedy. Eli was a good man whose own sons were the cause of his downfall at the end of his life because he was too feeble to stop them abusing their power. So you, you, you get a picture of the destructive consequences of unchecked sin. That the whole thing was a disaster. The hardening of the hearts of Hophni and Phineas so that they paid no attention to their father. The ease with which they were able to abuse their positions with impunity. The dishonouring of the sanctuary of God and the name of God that resulted from that. The worshippers who were disenchanted. The women who were abused to satisfy their own sexual desires. The way in which Eli's tolerance of their behaviour resulted in his being complicit in what they were doing. The way in which their behaviour ended up having catastrophic consequences for their family and for the nation as a whole. Yes, nuclear explosion perhaps is a good picture to use of what happened as a result of these men's sinful behaviour and the fallout from it, the destructive effects from it. And how did it all begin? Where did it all start to go wrong? The rot sets in when people think that they can take what they want. It's theirs to have. Why shouldn't they take the best bits of meat for themselves from time to time? Why shouldn't they be entitled to that? Why why shouldn't they sleep with that pretty girl who worked at the entrance of the sanctuary if if she was willing to do so? I see what I want, want what I see, and I'll take it. That's how it starts. But sinful desires, once indulged, start to grow. And these men who just started off being a bit greedy, a bit sexually lax, just actually following their fancies wherever they led, these men ended up bullying extortioners notorious adulterers, priests who dragged the good name of God through the mire and brought ruin upon their father, their family and their country. It starts small, just doing and taking what you want. But sin is insidious and it's pervasive. It grows, takes over, destroys our own lives and the lives of those around us. So what's the lesson from from the tragedy of Eli and his sons? Quite simply this, don't tolerate sin 
in your own life or anybody else's. Because we're called to walk together and watch over each other. It is the moral equivalent of Japanese knotweed. (laughs) Once it gets a root there, it takes over and destroys everything else. So we've just, we've just had communion. We've talked about God's acceptance of us, God's forgiveness of us, God's welcome of us. Don't confuse forgiveness of sin with tolerance for sin. They're not the same at all. God forgives us because he wants to rid us of this destructive weed that takes over our lives. So, as we go home, Let's go home reflecting. Is there something that's taking root somewhere? Am I indulging my desires in a way that is wrong or harmful? Looking back, can I see a progression from what didn't seem to matter very much at the time to actually it's getting quite serious now and this isn't as it should be? Is there some incompatibility between my role as a priest of the Lord, because we're all priests of the Lord here, between someone who's set aside to the service of God and what I'm doing? Is there some inconsistency there? Have I lost control over how I'm living? And if you see anything there, if you can see sin taking root in your life, then ask God to deliver you from it. Be honest with yourself and with somebody else about what's going on. Ask for someone to pray with you and support you in getting your life back on track again. But don't make the mistake of thinking, it doesn't matter. Because the story of Eli tells us it does. matters desperately. And if you value your faith, your family, your church... Ask God to get you back on the right path and to do it now. So let's pray. Lord, we think of Eli's sons ignoring his warning to them, carrying on on their path to destruction. Lord, if ever you need to set us right, if ever you need to turn us back from the wrong path, speak to us clearly. Have mercy upon us. Leave us in no doubt about the gravity of what you are saying. You call us all to repent, to turn away uh, from a wrong path and to turn back to you. Give us grace to do that. And where wrong desires have taken control of our minds and hearts. We pray that you set us free from them, that you would 
um, release us from their hold and direct our hearts and minds towards you. Where sin has taken charge, we pray that you would remove it from the throne of our hearts and place your spirit there instead. Where we are in trouble, may we find you to be our saviour and deliverer. You do what we cannot do for ourselves. You rescue us and you save us. So I pray for anyone here while listening to this sermon who feels that they've gone a long way down the wrong path. Lord, help us to turn back to you and find grace to get back to where we should be. Thank you, Jesus, that you are our saviour. Thank you that you died on the cross to remove the power of sin from our lives. Restore us again and change us from the inside out, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.